I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. If you happen to be a regular listener to the Van City Podcast and you believe in what our church is up to, whether you're in Vancouver or elsewhere in the world, consider supporting the church financially by visiting vancity.church give. The following teaching is part four in the series, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not. Voting, we're often told, is the best and maybe only way to ensure justice prevails in society. But what if your side doesn't win? In a time of great political oppression, one obscure first century rabbi had the audacity to believe that his inverted vision of justice, which he called the kingdom of God, would somehow change the world without any political power at all. And somehow, it did. My invitation to you is to begin by imagining an American diplomat who is sent abroad as an ambassador for the United States. This place that the ambassador will visit operates via a system of government with which the ambassador does not agree. And even so, imagine that this ambassador has a certain fondness for their country of temporary residence. It isn't their home, they don't agree with the powers that be, but they want good things for this place, and they care about the people, and they care about the culture. So while settled in this strange, distant land, they make it their business to be a good guest. They follow the rules, they accommodate the host culture, they pay taxes. But then one day, trouble besets the ambassador's surrogate nation, and those in power announce plans to go to war. And this nation plans to invade their neighbors, launching a brutal attack on them out of nowhere. And the locals begin to say to this U.S. diplomat, who has been such a good guest in their country, come wage war with us. You've lived here, you pay our taxes, you enjoy and even benefit from our way of life. Now join our cause. But the ambassador can't do it. You don't understand, they say. This is not my home. They came to this country to work and to do good and to follow the rules and to contribute something, but there are some things in which they simply cannot participate. They're an ambassador, not a citizen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. For the past three weeks, we've been working to build from the Scriptures a theology of politics and government. I said a few weeks ago that part of me wanted to say during all this, hey, if you're new here, it's not usually this incendiary, but I don't think anyone's buying that anymore. So if you're just joining us, you've missed something along the way, please go back and catch up via the podcast. We have been arguing over the last few weeks from the scriptures that no political party, no presidential candidate embodies or argues for the kingdom of God because God's kingdom is an inverted paradigm of power in which the meek are the ones who are blessed, not the powerful. The ultimate defeat of evil comes by way of self-sacrificial enemy love. The first are last, and great political superpower represents weakness rather than strength. And God's kingdom, rather than dominating others with the legislation of behavior, coercing that behavior with the threat of punishment, God's kingdom is about radical, self-sacrificial love with the power to do more than coerce behavior, but to reform hearts and change lives. So, nations are not Christian. They are fundamentally 
unchristian because political power can't obey the teachings of Jesus. Nations, for example, do not turn the other cheek as Jesus commanded. They do not bless their enemies rather than curse them. The best that the state can do is attempt to coerce behavior via legislation. And sometimes that coercion happens to resemble certain dimensions of Jesus' values, but most of the time it doesn't. And even if the state does something Jesus-y, on purpose or by coincidence, its foundation and function is antithetical to the kingdom of God. There's no such thing as a Christian government or a Christian nation any more than there's such thing as a Christian strip club. If a strip club donates a huge percentage of their profit to charity, there's a resemblance to a certain dimension of Jesus' values, but the entire premise and function of a strip club is fundamentally contrary to the kingdom of God. So you might argue that a strip club that donates to charity is in many ways better than a strip club that engages in human trafficking. And you might be right. But neither is Christian, nor can they ever be. And for hundreds of years, the church unanimously understood, argued for, and upheld this crucial distinction between God's kingdom and what they called the kingdoms of the world, the empires, the state. It wasn't until Constantine legalized Christianity in the 4th century that the church, slowly but surely, got in bed with the state and the tragic consequences of this identity crisis and misplaced allegiance linger to this day. Most historians agree that most of the uh, founding fathers of America were deists, not Christians. And though the founding principles of the United States echoed the values of the Enlightenment, not the teachings of Jesus, there has persisted in America this stubborn myth of a Christian nation, and that we are it. Consequently, misled or else willfully disobedient, some so-called and some sincere Christians have labored in vain to drive a square-shaped peg into a circular hole. And in their wasted effort, they twisted the church to their own will rather than the will of God. But more than 2,000 years ago, our teacher and master stood before political power and was asked, point blank, his political intentions. Let's read from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning with verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing to this man, Jesus? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate's a Gentile, they're Jewish. But, they said, the Jewish leaders, we have no right to execute anyone. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, The reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth 
listens to me. Jesus does not deny his kingship, which is a subversive political statement because there was a king and Jesus was not it. But Jesus makes it clear, my kingdom is not of this world. Across the United States of America, people are voting for the next president. And of course, people vote for different reasons. Many of them, as we've discussed these past few weeks, with apocalyptic fervor. Some vote against a candidate, as is represented by this lawn sign that you can buy online. Others vote as a kind of a shrug. This one, I guess, as is represented by this lawn sign. Others still have begun to lose patience with the whole thing, as is evidenced by this lawn sign. Uh, and these voters will have any number of reasons for voting the way that they do. Some vote because they want changes made, or some vote because they want things to stay the same. Because, they will say, voting is an American duty, or a privilege, or a religious necessity, or voting is how we love our neighbors, some will say. And many of those voters will vote with issues in mind. They'll vote on the economy, or stocks, or whatever. But that kind of talk doesn't bring the big clicks, you know. These days, the issues are moral ones. And they don't just matter, they matter for the sake of the survival of the civilized world. After all, if one side wins, America will become a fascist empire worse than Hitler's Third Reich governed, governed by an evil racist dictator. But if the other side wins, America's power will be seized by a secret cabal of devil-worshipping pedophile cannibals. People actually believe these things, and with gusto. But, baffling mob hysteria aside... Any reasonable person would admit that either way, the outcome will have drastic moral consequences for our nation. The power of the empire does not operate according to the teachings of Jesus, which is, like I said, radical self-sacrificial love, nonviolence, blessing enemies. And consequently, the leaders of the empire can't translate the teachings of Jesus to the world of political power. You can try to legislate behavior, but that will never reform hearts. Think about it. Every one of you in this room who follows Jesus as Lord did not come to faith because it was legally necessary. The threat of punishment can compel a lot of religious behavior outwardly, but it can never make a person love God and love their neighbor. When we were set against God, God showed us unmerited kindness and when we were dead in our brokenness, he made us alive and made us capable of responding to his gentle, persistent love. So, you can legislate, say, marriage, but it will never bring someone into the transforming power of God's spirit that empowers them to lay even their sexuality before the king in reverent submission. You can punish violent criminals with jail time or even execution, but it will never overcome them with the scandal of the God who loves his enemies and makes broken people capable of doing the same thing. So you may have opinions about laws and legislations, and that's fine, but those opinions are not inherently Christian, and that can be hard to accept. And it's not for no good reason that so many Christians chase after political power. We can't help but see brokenness and corruption and evil in our world, and we want it to change, and that's good. God gave us that fire inside. 
But no one politician or political party encapsulates God's vision for justice and goodness. So the church has two choices. One, we can acknowledge the radical distinction between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, and we can deal with it. Or we can step into a long, sad tradition of working desperately to twist our political parties and preferences into the shape of a cross to the same disastrous results that have brought disrepute to the church for centuries now. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his novel, The Screwtape Letters, in which, if you know the premise, a mentor demon writes to an apprentice demon on how to best deceive his human prey. The mentor demon says this, Let him begin by treating the patriotism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then, quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he's ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cage fool down here. Now, here's where I'm going with all this tonight and where we're landing with this, the conclusion of this series, aptly planned to end this week. The earliest disciples of Jesus refused to participate in the political systems of their time and place. They denounced allegiance to rulers and regimes. They refused to go to war for or against the empire, though they had every reason For the latter, they were a small, persecuted minority suffering routine injustice under the tyranny of the system, and they outwardly heralded a radical, subversive announcement of a new king and a new king and a new kingdom, and it was not Caesar. And yet, the early church teaching on how to engage the political machine was pray for those in power. Though in their context, they were uniformly evil and oppressive. Pray for those in power. Love your enemies. Pay taxes. And as much as they don't require you to disobey Jesus, quietly follow the rules. But these earthly rulers are not your master. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Love God. Love others. This, they taught, will change the world a kind of quiet defiance, a peaceful spiritual revolt. Today, the New Testament approach to political power will bring you under attack by both the right and the left sides of the aisle. Lazy, they'll say. Privileged, selfish, irresponsible, hopelessly unrealistic. They will say this because so many believe that the primary, if not only way, that any vision of human flourishing will advance in the world is through policies and politics. So do me a favor and turn one book to the left in your Bibles, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13. Jesus' vision for human flourishing, the topic on which he taught more so than any other topic, he called the kingdom of God. A no-name peasant rabbi from an obscure backwoods village on the edge of the empire, Jesus' big plan sounds delusional in context. Look down at Luke 13, beginning with verse 18. Then Jesus asked, 
What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. Very, very tiny. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Despite the fact that Jesus lived in a time of hostile political division, despite his belonging to an oppressed minority, despite the fact that Jesus' people believed that the Messiah would be inherently a political figure, Jesus rejected the traditional paradigm for political involvement and activism and yet insisted that the kingdom would be unstoppable. In one story of Jesus' life, he was actually tempted by the devil to seize political power like everyone thought the Messiah would. This is from Luke chapter 4. It says, The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, Satan said, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now notice, When Jesus refutes the devil, he does not contest the claim that the kingdoms of the world have been given to Satan. Hence, the subsequent authors of the New Testament go on to describe the Satan as, quote, the God of this age who has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Or in 1 John, we read that we know that we are children of God and that the whole world, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus, time and time again, subverted the expectation of a political kingdom and a political Messiah. He did not reach for power over others. He did not advocate legislation. He never taught his followers to Christianize the empire. And somehow this obscure rabbi that many today would accuse of being politically withdrawn even... He had the audacity to assume that his unrealistic kingdom vision would spring up from a tiny seed becoming a great tree that elsewhere, he said, would make room for the whole world in its branches. That the kingdom of God would permeate the world like yeast kneaded into dough. And then this hopelessly unrealistic vision actually did exactly that. Jesus' kingdom vision turned the empire upside down. It transformed from a tiny grassroots movement into a movement that proliferated across the ancient world. The early Christians found in this gospel something worth dying for, and many early disciples of Jesus did exactly that. Many continue to do that to this day. And if you trace the story of the church throughout history, you find this strange oscillation in which when the church functioned as it did in the beginning, distinct from the kingdom of the world, the way of Jesus advanced. It went forward with justice and goodness and love for neighbor and reconciliation. But when the church historically has reached for power, you find violence and tyranny and imperialism and injustice and political idolatry. But how can the church carry out its calling to do justice and care for the poor and stand with the oppressed and oppose violence and speak for those without a voice and defend the defenseless, if not through the systems of power and government? Before we can answer that question, we need to address the pervasive misunderstanding that the political system actually advances the causes that make single-issue voters of so many Christians, that the political system actually changes society to become more 
just. Now I'm going to use two divisive issues as examples because we've made it this far. I'm going to ask, keep an open mind, bear with me. If you're still here after these few weeks, then you can definitely do it. You'll be fine. The most infamous issue amongst the single-issue voting philosophy philosophy is probably abortion. Many, many self-proclaimed Christians have kind of pinched their noses and cast their unhappy ballots for politicians and parties they find wildly problematic for the sole sake of unborn children. And in this paradigm, the right side of the aisle is known for its political opposition to abortion, and the left side is known for its political permissiveness on the same issue. So these self-identifying Christians vote for the right. But for the last few decades, the numbers seem to move in the opposite direction. When the first George Bush was in office during the late 80s and early 90s, the abortion rate went unchanged. It was 23 abortions for every 1,000 women. But then when Democrat Bill Clinton took his place, the numbers fell from 23 to 16. Then when Republican George W. Bush was in charge, the number again froze at that 16 and 1,000. But under Obama, who was a Democrat, it dropped again from 16 to 12.5. Immigration is another volatile issue, the stereotype being an immigrant compassionate left and a hateful wall-building right. But with a year to go in his presidency at the time, Obama had already deported more immigrants than any president in U.S. history, which earned him the nickname Deporter-in-Chief by immigrants' rights activists. Or I think of the way that the left, reeling after George W. Bush's war on terror and the bombing of civilian Afghanistan, the shock and awe campaign, if you remember all that, They kind of rallied around Obama's change campaign slogan for a more peaceful, less violent, less warmongering America. And then Obama oversaw more drone strikes in his first year than his predecessor carried out during his entire presidency. He eventually carried out 10 times more strikes, 563 to Bush's 57, killing hundreds of civilian men, women, and children in the process. Now, of course... Political enthusiasts will argue that these issues are more complicated than a handful of figures, and I don't disagree at all, but that's entirely the point. Self-proclaimed Christian voters who parrot rhetoric about voting for issues, not presidents, are made to select certain values at the expense of others, so they pick parties and politicians that promise to honor these cherry-picked values, and history shows that most of the time they don't. By voting a selected value to do good, one becomes complicit in the evil that is carried out after the fact, which is often the very evil they were voting to combat. Because political values are never entirely consistent with kingdom of God values. The easiest example is the political term pro-life. Pro-life in our culture describes a person or organization that is politically opposed to abortion, and the definition sort of ends there. And to be clear, violence against the unborn is a satanic evil. Of course, the circumstances surrounding why someone chooses an abortion are vast and complicated, and the church, our church, must be a safe place for those conversations and for openness and healing for those who are considering or have had abortions. So we recognize the hurt in this complex issue, and we want our church to become a refuge for healing, and we recognize all that because we recognize the devil who is at work in violence against the unborn. Over and against the naturalist worldview of unborn children as little more than a clump of cells or soulless tissue, 
The scriptures tell the story of a creator God who knows his beloved intimately, even in the womb, as he forms them with artful precision, speaking hope and future over their lives. To violently dismember an unborn person made in the image of God and to vacate the contents of their skull with a surgical vacuum is an act that belongs to the evil one. But unlike the politically pro-life, Jesus' concern for the sanctity of human life does not end when a person is born. A biblical paradigm for the sanctity of human life means no violence against anyone, born or unborn. To be biblically pro-life means demonstrating an active concern for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the, impre- the oppressed and indeed the, the women struggling with the decision as to whether or not they will carry and keep their children. It also means demonstrating an active concern for God's creation and care for the environment and in the animal kingdom. It means caring for others with humble respect during a global pandemic. But in the narrow and decidedly non-kingdom of God worldview of American politics, pro-life has a sad, flat meaning on both the right and the left. On the right, it means politically opposed to abortion. On the left, where abortion is reframed as a social justice issue, pro-life means hateful, misogynistic oppressor of women, a brittle caricature designed to silence dialogue as much as the character of pro-choice activists as bloodthirsty baby killers. Close friend of mine is a pastor. She is one of the best pastors that I know and have known. And she told me about a meeting that she had with a young woman in Portland who was struggling with being a Christian and being associated to the anti-abortion movement. And she echoed to my pastor friend the popular catchphrase, it's my body, my choice. And my friend, she said to this young woman, kindly, I'm sure, well, theologically, that's wrong twice. Though one side creates a veneer of concern for the unborn, and the other a veneer of concern for women's rights, and while both the unborn and women's rights matter deeply to God, neither political system offers anything like a kingdom vision for either thing. Thus, the political emphasis on pro-life becomes a tangle of contradictions and broken promises. Parties and politicians can claim political opposition to abortion, and not be remotely pro-life in the biblical sense whatsoever. And then history shows that the rate of abortions is more likely to drop when their opponents are in power. The left can wax poetic about compassion for immigrants and refugees and decry the heinous warmongering of their political opponents. And then after their party seizes power, absolutely skyrocket the number of deportations, drone strikes, and civilian casualties. But the violent, overwhelming rhetoric seizes you by the neck and throttles you, screaming in your face, what kind of person are you? What party is yours? Your party allegiance says it all. Your vote says it all. Do you care about the poor or the unborn? You have to pick one. Do you care about refugees or the economy? Pick one. It doesn't matter what actually happens and doesn't happen. Your bumper sticker, your hashtag, and your vote puts you on the right or wrong side of history. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? So we get duped. 
Because God has given us a desire for justice, innate in the human wiring, and especially, I would argue, set alive and on fire by the Spirit of God for those who follow Jesus, we have been given a desire for justice. When we see horrific injustice in the world, a deep-seated and God-given dimension of our soul says, this is not right, someone should do something. And then, steeped in the outrage and vitriol of partisan politics, we allow that narrative to define the problems and the solutions. And when the contradictions are glaring, the only strategy is to point them out on the other side. They have contradictions and ignoring or explaining them away on your side. The only thing that matters is your side being in power. Without it, the world will burn down. Theologian Greg Boyd argues this, the enemy's ploy is to fuse loyalty that belongs to God and allegiance that should be singularly devoted to the kingdom of God and have it transferred to some degree or entirely over to some version of the kingdom of this world. When our allegiance to country, philosophy, state, or cause takes over our allegiance to God, there's a biblical word for that, and it's called idolatry. Idolatry is any time we get our worth and significance and value and sense of rightness from something other than Jesus Christ. And when considering all this theologically, the very frustrating truth is that whoever is in governmental authority, they will not lead according to the way of Jesus because it simply cannot be enforced or upheld by systems of power. So maybe your issues went out, at least on a superficial level, but at the expense of some other issues. A couple of weeks ago, pastor and theologian John Piper, who famously or infamously belongs to a theological camp that's kind of known for their decidedly right-wing emphasis on politics and voting, he shocked his readers and pastoral contemporaries with a not-at-all-subtle political statement that was neither right nor left. I was shocked as I agree with very little of Piper's theology and passionately disagree with most of it. But get this, I'm about to read a quote from him and break my own rule to never quote John Piper in my teaching. So you better appreciate this. He said this. I find, it's a long one too, look at that. I find it bewildering that Christians can be so sure that greater damage will be done by bad judges or bad laws or bad policies than is being done by the culture-infecting spread of the gangrene of sinful self-exaltation and boasting and strife-stirring. And I think it is baffling and presumptuous to assume that pro-abortion policies kill more people than a culture-saturating pro-self-pride. When a leader models self-absorbed, self-exalting boastfulness, he models the most deadly behavior in the world. He points his nation to destruction, destruction of more kinds than we can imagine. It is naive to think that a man can be effectively pro-life and manifest consistently the character traits that lead to death, temporal and eternal. But we get duped. We are deceived when we buy into the apocalyptic rhetoric of the kingdom of this world that the only way to care, the only way to advance justice and goodness is with a party, a politician, a policy, that to deny this is apathy or entitlement or privilege. And so the question remains, if true kingdom of God justice does not prevail via the power over structures of politics, then what do we do? And the answer, I think, is stark 
and simple and counterintuitive and for many, deeply unsatisfying. It is the answer of centuries of the early church, an answer that was considered as foolish then as it is to this day, but yet turned the ancient world upside down. What do we do? Practice the way of Jesus together. And by practice the way of Jesus together, I do not mean to believe certain things about God in your mind, identify as a Christian, and show up to church once in a while, as the American civil religion imagines its faux Christianity. I mean to immerse yourself in the scriptures day in and day out, to walk and live in the ways of prayer without ceasing, contemplation, practicing the presence of God so that the mind of Jesus seeps into your heart and soul. I mean to practice faithfulness, to be present to your friends and family and community, to live with vulnerability and with accountability to other people. And in living this way, the ways of faithful prayer and spiritual discipline, we are made over into the image of Jesus, and we change. And the change that begins in us then projects outward to the rest of the world. The teachings of Jesus are then reflected and represented in the way that we spend money, passionately convinced that it is better to give things away than to keep them for ourselves, as our master taught. And we begin to demonstrate true compassion for the poor and the orphan and the widow that results in action, and we begin to give of our finances and our resources and our time and ourselves. And we live with respect and reverence for God's creation, refusing to participate in the abuse and vandalism of the environment and the animal kingdom. And we reject the selfish entitlement of lifestyle that denies the suffering and sickness of other people or the degradation of the planet. And we are compelled by the Spirit moving in us to live in ways that demonstrate compassion for both and action for both. We begin to walk in humility and forgiveness and nonviolence, an enemy love that extends from the unborn to the elderly, from our neighbors to our enemies, both personal and national. And all of our allegiance is for Jesus and only Jesus always. And when that happens, maybe your vocation will take the shape of some kind of radical social activism. Maybe. Or maybe you'll be a student, or a parent, or a pilot, or an engineer, or an artist, or a server, or a, de a designer. Maybe you'll do all those things, living out the way of Jesus with others, while leading a quiet life, following the rules, paying taxes, being in America, not of America. The contradiction of our election season, quasi-democracy, is in the fevered campaign for the vote. Everyone must vote. You have to vote. It's so, so important. But only if you vote the way that I want you to vote. If you vote for the other guy, you're a monster for voting at all. As if everything depends on the empire's elected official once every four years and not in the smallness of our everyday lives. Once more, Greg Boyd said this of voting... We vote our values with every decision we make by how we interact with people and by how we spend our time and money. The way followers of Jesus are to vote is not by expressing our opinion about what Caesar should do once every couple of years, 
but by how we sacrifice for others to manifest the love of God day by day. And if our total hope for the world is in Jesus and his kingdom, as it ought to be, then none of our hope should be in Caesar and his kingdom, whatever version happens to be in place. Whoever wins the election, whether we know in a few days or in a few weeks, some people will be very upset. That's fine. It's fine for you as a disciple of Jesus, to have certain opinions about what you think are the most sensible functions of government when you are soberly aware of what government can and cannot do and when none of your hope or allegiance is invested in politics whatsoever. If you're one in a hundred people capable of that level-headedness, way to go. It's also fine as a disciple of Jesus to abstain from the political process if that is the leading you receive from God's Spirit, and I believe for many it is, either way, someone will be ticked. If you vote, it has to be in one direction, and the other side will demonize you. You won't be Christian enough, or at all. And if you abstain, you'll be privileged and withdrawn, not Christian enough, or at all. But we live under the teachings and lordship of Jesus, not a political party, or a Facebook mob, or a snarky Instagram story, and we are not led by the cultural pressure of our time and place. I am not setting out to live my life according to social media rhetoric, or because of my anger toward a certain politician, or because I'm scared of being called privilege. I want to do what Jesus tells me to do, and if the world hates me, at least I will be in good company. It is very, very easy to bicker online. It's even pretty easy to vote, I'm told. The narrow road of Jesus is not easy. But the narrow road of Jesus is the only unshakable hope. For many, the world will end in the weeks ahead. Whoever wins, the idols of millions will come crashing down and their hope will be dashed on the unforgiving rocks of the election process. My wife, Abby, and I had a small apartment in northwest Portland during the 2016 election. And I remember finding it bizarre and even kind of darkly hilarious, a truly Simpsons-esque moment, that's what I mean by that, when a small number of Portlanders took to rioting at the news of Donald Trump's victory. And I remember thinking, your city and state already agrees with you, and you're setting it on fire, as if the people in power would go, oh, stop everything, some yuppie millennials in Portland don't like the results of this, we better rethink the whole process. Nothing reveals deep, profound political idolatry like election results. And when the results of an election are your hope for the world, you do weird stuff. What will the church do? Because whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump in power, your call will be exactly the same. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, seek first the kingdom and live according to the Sermon on the Mount. And neither elderly man, nor their administrations, nor their parties can stop you from following Jesus. Now, of course, there are aspects of life and discipleship that will be affected by the election. Of course, some of them you may find agreeable, depending on who wins, and others decidedly less so. But whoever wins, there will be certain evils that advance in the world via the power of the empire, as has always been the case. But no matter what, 
the church's call to righteousness and justice remains the same. Maybe sometimes that call will kind of sort of line up with some state policies. Many times it will not. So you can put all your faith in the result of an election if you want, and you can lose your mind if your faith is dashed to pieces, set Portland and Vancouver on fire, think to yourself, Instagram is going to hear about this. Or you can commit now to ask God for the strength and conviction to live out the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament no matter what, disappointed or not. These passages that we've been reading for weeks now like remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceful and considerate, always be gentle towards everyone. Or from Romans, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is in the right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. These words of Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, are as true now as they were in the first century, and they will be true on Tuesday and in the days and weeks and years that follow. When the world around you, especially news media and especially social media, in which so many are deeply entrenched, though I hope and pray that that changes for the church. When the world around you bombards you with its unending life and death propaganda, it seems hard to believe that Jesus thought we could change the world in obscurity, quietly living out his commands as the family of God, the church. But somehow the gospel did change the world this way. And it still does. And it still can. So let's pray that that would be the case in our lives and in our city and in the world. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.